Good morning. Well, that was exciting, wasn't it? Like, I was really waiting for this uh, beautiful board to jump out in front of one of those ladies. We were a little on edge back there. They cheated death this morning in their blind walk of faith. I encourage you, uh, ladies, if you are around April 6th, to go ahead and get connected with that group. It's going to be an amazing time uh, to talk about faith and to learn from other women there. So um, again, good morning. Thank you guys for joining us today. My name is Brian. For those watching online, it's great to have you. And West Falls Church, we're grateful that you're part of our community. This morning, we're actually going to be talking about faith. So their skit was quite fitting. A lot of times it can feel like faith is just blind faith. I don't know if you've ever been through something challenging. Somebody just looks at you and says, ah, just believe. Like, how infuriating is that? Like, that's never good enough, right? Like, that statement almost just adds insult to injury. And yet, we have a lot of questions about faith. How much faith is enough? How do I know I have faith? What does faith look like or feel like? What happens when I get faith? As if, like, faith is a virus that all of a sudden is contagious and you start exhibiting symptoms or the flu. Like, what happens when I get it? Something just automatically changes. These are all questions that I've been approached with, questions that I carry myself. How much faith is enough? And so this morning, I want to talk a little bit about is the end goal of faith faith itself? Why have faith? What is faith? If you want something to change in your life, If you want to change your world, which is what we've been talking about the past seven weeks, you have to believe in something. You have to place your faith in something. We have a curriculum that we use here called Starting Point, and they say it well. The ability to believe something and act on it, this concept of faith, has launched everything from life-saving medical developments to genocide. Faith. Everything that has been done, good or bad, has been done because somebody believed it could be done and believed it should be done. That's faith. We all live with an element of faith. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. That's what Romans has been digging into so strongly. Romans 1, 16 and 17. We're going to read it again this morning um, because it's Paul's thesis. It's his thesis statement. I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I'm actually going to read it to you and ask you to just listen to the words of it. I'm adding verse 17 to it because I believe it's important to Paul's argument that we're talking about this morning. Romans 1, 16 to 17. Listen to, the, to how often the word faith appears. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, The one who is righteous will live by faith. Like, that's a lot of faith packed into two sentences. It's it's overwhelming. This is Paul's thesis statement for everything that he's accomplishing, trying to communicate in this one letter. It's about faith. So Romans 1, 16 and 17 is his thesis, and he goes into how humanity, how you and I were created, the role that we were intended to play in chapter 1. And somewhere at the end of chapter 1, beginning at chapter 2, he talks about the flaw that has developed. That all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, we have decided to exchange God's glory for our glory. We were created in God's image, and all of a sudden, we've turned inward. We've made it about us. When God has created us to turn outward and to be focused on him and others. 
And so there's a breakdown in the way that God created things. And then chapter, the end of chapter 2, beginning of 3, Paul's essentially saying, hey, we're all messed up. We are all affected by this sin, this challenge, this disconnection from God, this exchange from what God had intended it to be. And Paul has to remind his audience this, his Jewish audience especially, because the Jewish audience of Judaism in the first century believed that they had something special over the Gentile, over the non-Jewish person. And so Paul is building, carefully crafting this case in chapters 1 through 3 until he gets to chapter 4. In chapter 4, what we're talking about this morning tends to be his proof case. Like if you've ever been in an argument and you've just got kind of that trump card that you know, okay, as soon as I say this, this is going to settle everything, right? Like whether it's a marriage or a relationship or work, like you're just holding out. You don't want to use it. But if you have to, you force my hand, I'm going to use it. Like this is Paul's trump case. This is his proof that everything in chapters 1 through 3 makes sense. And it's also biblical. This is Paul's argument. So we're going to be looking at Romans 4 this morning. Because I believe Paul sees in Abraham the reality of the power of the gospel, everything that we've been talking about this past seven weeks. For Paul, it's all summed up in this story of Abraham. It is the means by which we respond to everything that God has done in Romans 3. Paul states in Romans 3 that God has given us a gift of grace, that he's extended himself and revealed himself to us in a way that restores and brings back to order everything that was broken. And Paul says, here is the proof. Here is the proof. And this is how we respond to it. This is how we respond to it. This is our part. Have you ever had a defining moment in your life? Defining moment by which you, everything in your world looks differently. Like there's a before and there's an after this moment. For one of those... For me, it's been marriage. I've been, my wife, Joanne, and I have been married almost 12 years. And before we got married, like there's a before and an after that date. And before we got married, I was, you know, slightly socially awkward, introverted, a little bit of a loner. After we got married, I was slightly social, awkward, introverted. But now I had a spouse. And it changed everything. She also reminds me that my humor isn't often picked up on. It reminds me that my dry humor isn't always very helpful to people that don't know me. My wife, through all the ups and downs, I know she has my back. Through all the challenges that we're walking together, that she's faithful to me, that I'm faithful to her, there's a before and after. There's a before and after we had our son Eli, who's three and a half years old. There was a glorious before and a sleepless after. There's that defining moment. Many of you might know, some of you may not, but we're expecting another son in June. And there's going to be a sane before and an insanity after. Like there's a defining moment that takes place. I don't know what that's been for you. It's the same with the negative things in life. My father passed almost 11 years ago. And we, didn't, we had a very challenging relationship and there was a before and there was an after when I began to kind of reflect on who I was and who I wanted to be. A before and after. All of us have these moments. I want to read an excerpt out of this book from our nation's history, a defining moment in our nation's history where there's a clear before and after. Uh, it's the great expedition of Lewis, Lewis and Clark, exploring the continental U.S. and trying to find this Northwest Passageway. And I want to read it because I think it's well written. 
So Meriwether Lewis is navigating, trying to find this Northwest Passage. He's been commissioned by Thomas Jefferson to find a route to the Pacific Ocean. We pick up his story here, talking to Meriwether Lewis. He dipped his hands into the icy water and took a long, cold drink. Fifteen months of hard travel, a seemingly endless string of days, back-breaking, upstream slogging had led to this moment. He's essentially, him and his men are paddling upstream the Missouri River in canoes paddling upstream for 15 months. Meriwether Lewis recalled all that he had endured. Nervous nights in a strange land, mosquitoes galore, a dark, cold winter, grizzly bears, a month-long portage around an immense waterfall, the death of a companion. But he was here. They had followed a small trail up a creek, and now we're at the spring itself. This little trickle was the source of the mighty Missouri River. This water would flow all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. They had found what no other person of European descent had found before them. And the most challenging part of their journey was now behind them, or so they thought. For Meriwether Lewis, slacking his thirst from this little stream meant that he was about to realize the dream of centuries of pioneers, to fulfill the ambitions of the president, and to enter into a pantheon of explorers. His name and his corps would be remembered as the discoverers of the highly prized Northwest Passage. Lewis believed that he would walk up the hill, look down a gentle slope that would take his men a half day to cross with their canoes on their backs. And then they would see it, the Columbia River. After 15 months of paddling upstream, they looked forward to letting the current swiftly and gently whisk them to the Pacific Ocean. They would crest the hill, find the stream, and coast to the finish line. They could not have been more disappointed. What Lewis actually discovered was that 300 years of experts had all been completely and utterly wrong. In front of them was not a gentle slope down a navigable river, but the Rocky Mountains. Stretching out for miles and miles, as far as the eye could see, was one set of peaks after another. And if you caught the line earlier, they had planned to throw their canoes on their back and walk across this slope to the Columbia River, and they encounter the Rocky, moment, Rocky Mountains. There was no Northwest Passage, no navigable river, no water route. The driving assumption of the brightest and most adventurous entrepreneurials and creative leaders regarding this new world had been absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. There was a defining moment where 15 months and 300 years of study and, and estimations believed that they would crest this hill and find a pathway to the Pacific Ocean. But they were wrong. This is essentially a shift that Paul is also encountering when he thinks of Abraham. This is the shift that Paul is encountering when he thinks of Abraham. He has had Judaism for 1,500 years Think about Abraham one specific way. Talk about Abraham as the father of their faith, the one who knew God and the one to whom they were to emulate, to follow perfectly because he had this great relationship with God and was the father of their faith. But something for Paul, in a moment's notice, as he crests the hill, something changes dramatically for Paul. And I believe this is true. And actually, Paul writes about it in Philippians 3. He talks about how good of a Jewish person he was, how obedient he was, the good works that he had. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And what that means is he was following the law since he was a baby. His parents followed the law. Essentially, my daddy was better than your daddy. Like he did it from a very early age. He said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
born of the tribe of Benjamin. And a little bit of history there. Benjamin remained faithful. This tribe of Benjamin remained faithful even when the 10 tribes of the north had defected from God. Benjamin kept the temple. Benjamin kept in relationship with, with God. And Paul is saying, that's, that's who I'm from. I've got the right lineage. I've got it all down. He says, according to his zeal and passion for God, I was far beyond everybody else. According to the law, I was flawless. Nobody could put a finger at me. I kept every piece of it. And then something changes in Philippians. Something changes. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever were gains to me, all the stuff that I just mentioned, whatever was a gain, a credit in my account that got me favor with God, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Loss for the sake of Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. There's that word again, over and over again. Just like this defining moment for Paul, I believe faith is a shift in focus. Faith is a shift in focus. It is a shift in focus. Everything for Paul changes. The story of Abraham doesn't change. The scripture of Abraham doesn't change. The person of Abraham doesn't change. But all of a sudden, Paul sees something completely new. He says, been there all along, but I now see it clearly. We're going to talk this morning how we, how you can have faith like Abraham and how Paul's perspective changes everything. Because when your faith and your focus shift, a whole new understanding of God comes to life. I got glasses when I was in undergrad. Anybody else have glasses? I should put these back on as I ask that. Um, First time I got glasses was in undergrad. And I remember sitting in the back of the classroom one day being like, okay, this screen's a little bit fuzzy. It's not too bad. And I began to realize that, like, people walking toward me from across campus, like, it was almost like a detective project, like, puzzle piece. Like, okay, that's their body shape. That's usually the way they walk. That's their hair color. I think that's Isaac. I think it is. But I would never, like, yell out their name because I'd been wrong before. And I got glasses, and I put them on one day, new set of lenses, prescription lenses, put them on, and I said, ah, Neil. That's what you look like. Like, I could see them walking towards me, and it changed everything. It was a new set of lenses. My son last night, uh, somebody had given him a 3D book for Christmas this year. And they drive me nuts. Like, I never fully understand the 3D thing. But my wife and him are sitting on the couch last night reading this book. And he's amazed at what he can see with these new lenses on. Trying to figure out, how does this work? Why is that popping out at me? Why is it moving? All this stuff. And it's amazing. And I believe what Paul is saying here, after 1,500 years of understanding Abraham one way, is that your lens orients your life. Your lens orients your life. The things that you see around you are interpreted based on the lenses that you wear, the lenses by which you look through life. And we all have a set of lenses. They're created upon us culturally or socially, by our family, by our backgrounds, And they can kind of be just embedded, not really thought through. Or they can be deliberate. They can be a deliberate set of lenses by which we choose to see the world through. And that's what Paul is challenging his audience in Rome. There's a new lens through which to see the world. There's a new lens. And he's challenging them, pick this lens up in chapter 3. 
that is all based on grace, that is a gift that is freely given. It's not based on works, but it's based on something God has done. And chapter 4 is his proof case. Before we get into much of Romans 4, I need to make an academic side note. Um, We don't usually talk about original languages of grace. Uh, Quite honestly, uh, most people don't care. I spent four years studying original languages, ancient Semitic languages, and I've realized that as soon as I start talking to people about my degree, they're automatically, like, glazed over. There's 96% of the population that couldn't care less. Like, they, okay, give me the bottom line. The other 4% are like, okay, that's awesome. But what does that mean? So we need to take just a moment to talk about the original language because we're reading, for most of us, English. And our English Bibles are a translation of a different language. And how many of you know more than one language? A lot of people. Like, this area is pretty smart. And if you think about one language to another translation, there's never an exact corollary, right? Like, trying to make an exact connection. There's never quite an exact connection. Well, our English translations of the Bible use this word faith. But they also use this word trust. They also use the word confidence. They also use the word believe. But in the Greek, they're all the same word. Does that blow your mind? Like we've got five words for one Greek word. And the English authors have tried to add nuance to it to bring a little bit of variety, to bring a little bit of their purpose out. But this Greek word is pistuo. That's the verbal form. And pistis is the noun form. But it's all the same word in Greek. So when we see faith, you can also think trust. You can also think confidence. You can also think belief, believing, faithful. All these things rolled up into one term. And it's important because it comes in over and over and over again. As you read chapter four, you'll notice faith, belief, trust, confidence. In reality, he's talking about the exact same term. All right, everybody back. Everybody back. Eyes can be unglazed now. I told you. I warned you. Romans 4, 1 through 5. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. This is Paul's proof. He's trying to make the proof that God has extended a gift to all of humanity. And what he's saying is Abraham for 1,500 years has been interpreted as good enough to receive the gift. He's done all the work. So if we look at the Midrash, the Jewish commentaries on Scripture around Paul's time, Abraham was good enough that before the law was ever given, Abraham fulfilled all of the law. Like, that's pretty good, right? So 400 years after Abraham, Moses comes on the sea, God reveals 613 laws to them. But Abraham is so good, so connected to God, that he's able to fulfill all of those before they're even written down. That's the way Judaism had begun to understand Abraham. Because Abraham was so good, he had such good works, that God said, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And what Paul says is, Abraham, if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about before man, but not before God. Judaism, and this is what Paul is arguing against in Romans 1 through 3, is Judaism had kind of built up 
puffed up, become boastful, prideful, arrogant of all these laws and their special relationship with God. And instead of being able to fulfill the promises of God, they've actually begun boasting towards other nations. And if you've ever had that friend that likes to boast and is pretty prideful and talks about themselves all the time, what does that do? It kind of creates a little barrier, right? A little separation. And that's what's happened between Israel and the nations. They become prideful in their place, their works before God. And it's created a barrier between them and what God wanted to do through them. So Paul reminds them, we need to read this differently. Because Abraham didn't have the law. He didn't have circumcision when God reached out to him and said, I have a gracious gift to give you. I want to accept you in the way you are. And I want to send a blessing through you. I want to change your world and the world of everybody around you based purely on my grace and my love. And that is the powerful message that Paul wants to remind us um, in verse 5. It's a little complicated to read this verse. I actually hate the way this verse is translated. But I want to read it again. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly. What is it saying? To the person who isn't good enough, to the person that doesn't have the law, who doesn't obey God, isn't faithful God, isn't doing all the works, but yet trusts, has faith in God, what type of God? The God who justifies the ungodly. And for the Jewish person, like, their mind is just blown at this moment because God does not actually, like, you think God and ungodly don't go together. Like, that's all of religious history. God and ungodly don't go together. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, nope. God has done something where he is re actually reaching out to the ungodly and bringing them in the way that they are. Completely different story. But that's because Paul has had this amazing encounter with Jesus. Later on in the next chapter, he'll write in Romans 5.10, While we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through Jesus. While we were still enemies, believing in a God who reconciles the ungodly. It's a powerful story. So what's the bottom line? What does Paul see? The gospel is only powerful if it is based on God's work, not your work. The gospel is only powerful. Again, Romans 1, 16 and 17. It only has power if it's based on God's work and not your work. I was in a hotel for, I think it was about 35 days. We had a broken pipe under our home. We just moved back into our home a week ago. It's great to be out of a hotel. But I was there, and one day I decided to go down to the lobby, do a little bit of reading, um, talk, preparing for some of the questions that we've been doing in our small groups and that type of thing. And I brought a commentary down with me, and it's not just like a, a small book like this. It's actually over 800 pages. It's written by Thomas Schreiner. It's a great commentary, but it's like this big. Like, it's really impressive. Um, and I decided to go down to the lobby and read this book, put my earbuds in. Again, I'm that introvert. And I've got a pencil and paper in hand, and I'm taking notes. And I don't know if you've ever been somewhere and you just felt like somebody wants to start a conversation with me. Like somebody's like trying to catch eye contact and trying to find a like natural segue and to be like, hey, how's it going? So I'm sitting there, and this gentleman, about 55, 60 year old, I feel like starts like circling. Like, we got a little vulture syndrome going on. He's just circling around me. And so, you know, being a pastor and loving people and overseeing community, I decided to put the earbuds in a little bit further, <laughs> focus a little bit more. I do one of these things as I'm reading because I know how this goes. I don't, I love people. 
but I'm in the middle of something. I'm pretty task-oriented, and so I'm trying to read. And so this guy's like, that's a pretty big book. And I said, okay, I failed. <laughs> he just comes right in. And this is why I try to stay away from these. We talked for an hour and a half. Because uh, once you tell your, somebody you're a pastor, you can't really be a jerk and end the conversation. It gets really complicated. Um, but he shares his story. So the reason why he wanted to have a conversation with me is because he feels like his life had been gripped by God. And he wants to tell people. Part of me is like, okay, I'm a pastor. I've already got that part down. Go tell somebody else that needs to know. But his story was amazing. He grew up in Queens, New York, um, to a single mother. His father had left when he was two. His mother got addicted to, to drugs. Before, by the time he was going into high school, he had had many run-ins with the police, in drugs, into drugs himself, into violence, and actually spent two years in jail. And he got in contact with a mentor there while he was in high school, just coming out of jail. And this mentor connected him to a D.A.R.E. program, but also told him about the gospel. And he said at that moment, he looked and he said, okay, this is something pretty cool. God has saved my life, and so I'm going to pay God back. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to pay God back for saving me out of jail, saving me out of drugs, alcohol, connecting me with this mentor. He said for two years, he worked incredibly hard doing missionary work, going everywhere, learning how to preach, studying the Bible, going to classes, trying to get his life back because he was going to pay God back. And he said after two years, he felt incredibly disconnected from God, incredibly disconnected from God. And for 15, almost 20 years, he would find himself back into drugs and alcohol. He would get married. He would lose his wife because she didn't want her children to be around him in the state that he was in. And he found himself actually in Hawaii, working on a fishing boat, living in a hotel, not wanting to be in relationship with anybody, trying to get as far away from everything in the world. He picked the right place to go to. Hawaii is wonderful. But he found, he's trying to run from everything. He had nothing left. And he said he got off the boat one night and was going back to his hotel just to, to drink, to just kind of forget everything. And he ran into this random person in the street. And that person looked at him and said, you look lost and like you're about to do something you'll regret. God wants you to know that he's your father and you are his son. And he accepts you where you are. And Joe, this gentleman I was talking to, looks at me and he says, that was the first time somebody ever told me I was their son. The thought that I was God's son, in the moment when I had absolutely nothing, I was God's son and he accepted me. And he said for the last 10 years, he had been living so grateful that at the moment when he had absolutely nothing, that's when he understood God. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 4. The gospel is only powerful when it's based on God's work and not your work. Romans 4, 18 through 25. Hoping against hope, Abraham believed that he would become the father of many nations. According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, for he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words that was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. 
It will be reckoned to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Paul looks at the life of Abraham. Abraham was as good as dead. He had nothing to bring to the table. That's the exact moment that Joe himself found himself in the grip of God's grace, understanding the power of this story of Christianity. See, our faith rises and falls based on its focus. Rises and falls based on its focus. Some of the time, and maybe some of you here, are more focused on do I have enough faith as if it's a quantifiable scare. Once I reach a certain saturation level, then I'm good. I'm in. And the question maybe should shift a little bit. Instead of do I have enough faith, maybe it should be is the God I'm putting my faith in worthy of it? Instead of do I have enough faith, is the God that I'm trusting worthy of my faith? This is the story of Paul. He's become so certain that his interaction with Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done, is worthy of every ounce of faith that he has, every trust, every confidence that he puts in it. And so the question of faith for Paul and for us begins with, who is Jesus? Is he worthy of our faith? Is he able to do everything that he says he's able to do? Because Paul says that the object of Abraham's faith wasn't just this feel-good feeling of faith, but the object was the fact that God was able to do what he had promised. God was able to do what he had promised. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul focuses on the promises of God. See, Paul is subtly shifting his audience to a new way of thinking, a new way of looking, a new set of lenses that says, okay, it's not about me, about my work, but it's actually about what God has done. And we can trust that God is faithful when we look at Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished. Because for Paul, Jesus, his life, death, and particularly his resurrection, proved God's faithfulness. Proved God's faithfulness. Abraham's faithfulness is kind of up and down. I don't know if you've read Genesis 12, 15, 17 lately, but if you read the story of Abraham, he's kind of a hot mess. He's really, like, for all that God does for him. Now, I know we just read Romans 4 that he didn't waver, that he held strong to God, and his faith in God's promise was really strong, so strong that he was willing to help God out on the promise part. And so God reaches out to Abraham, who is ungodly in, in Genesis 12. He's serving other gods. And God says, okay, I've got a promise I want to give you. Do you trust me? And Abraham says, all right, sure. You're a better off deal than what I've got now, so let's give it a shot. Genesis 15, a number of years has passed since Genesis 12, and God says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham says, well, I'm pretty old. About 100 is pretty old for having kids. And... He's like, uh, my servant, Eleazar, maybe he'll be the offspring. Maybe he'll tear, carry forward this promise. And God says, no, that's not good enough. It'll be you. And Abram says, okay, maybe I'll use my maidservant, Hagar, because Sarah's never been able to have kids, so maybe we'll try with her. And God's like, all right, you, you're kind of missing the point. When I tell you to trust me, just trust me. 
Abraham's got a lot of trust in God, but he's also trying to help God. He's got a lot of his own works that are trying to come into the play. And how we know that it's all about God and not Abraham is because there is a covenant that is made between God and Abraham in Genesis 17 and 15. And the way that covenants were back in the day, you've got to think, remember, 4,000, 3,500 years ago, like a long time ago, uh, bringing an academic note, the word for covenant in Hebrew is karat, which literally means to cut. And so they would cut a covenant. And what they would do is they'd take an animal, sorry, animal lovers and PETA employees, they would take an animal, cut the animal in half, lay it on the side of this path, and both parties of a covenant would walk through it. And what they would say is, if I break my part of the covenant, let what has happened to these animals happen to me also. Let me be cut in half for not fulfilling my covenant. What's powerful in Genesis 15 is that God looks at Abraham and says, okay, we're going to cut a covenant. And Abraham's like, all right, this isn't going to be good. Like, because I'm not going to be able to live up to my end of the bargain. I've already messed up a number of times. And God says, okay, here's what I want to teach you. We're going to make a covenant together, but Abraham, you're actually going to sit out. You're not going to walk through the pieces. Because I know you're going to mess up. I know your works aren't good enough. I know your faithfulness isn't good enough. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the pieces of this animal. And if I don't fulfill my end of the promise, then let me be torn in two. And Abraham says, okay, that's a deal I can live with. That's good. And that's the story of faith. Is that although our life is up and down, incredibly complicated, messed up, we are poor at working, obedience, following, poor at faithfulness at times, that is a story of God's faithfulness to his promise, that he says, I have promised you something and I'm going to bring it into existence. The gospel is only powerful if it is based on God's faithfulness, not your faithfulness. The gospel is only powerful if it's based on God's faithfulness and not your faithfulness. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what Paul is trying to orient his audience to. He said, for 1,500 years, we've been so focused on obeying the law that somewhere along the way, we feel like it's now due to us. That the grace of God has become not a gift, but wages that have been earned. That they've learned how to follow God so well that now God owes them something. This is the shift When we shift our focus to God's faithfulness, our faith begins to actually take root. Because we're no longer concerned about our own faith, the level that we have, how good we are, how much faith we have, if my faith is strong enough, if it's good enough. We see in Abraham that it's wavering quite a bit. But God's faithfulness never does. See, when you trust God to be faithful, to fulfill his promises to bring life, to restore and reconcile, suddenly you see things differently. Can you imagine if the burden of the relationship, the burden of life, the burden of this world rested on God and not on you? How freeing would that be? If all that burdens us on a day-to-day basis didn't rest on how good you were, how faithful you were, how wonderful you were to get God's favor, but it actually rested on God himself. Now, I know there's a little bit of a caveat here because the church person's like, yeah, but like, we still got to live a certain way. And you're right, you're right. Paul in Romans 5 through 8 gets to the way that we live. 
Again, the lens through which we see life orients and motivates our life. Once we put on the lens of Jesus Christ, what he has done, something inside of us changes and our life changes, our lifestyle changes, our decisions change, all this changes. But what Paul is going to great extents in chapter 4 about is trying to say the way that our faith grows, the way that our relationship with God and others grows, the way the world changes is when we start at this point and we keep this point perpetually in our focus. Perpetually in our focus. That is God's work, not our works. That is God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness. That is how we actually grow. And that is incredibly freeing. That God takes up the weight of the responsibility and says, let me take this on. Faith in God's faithfulness is the lens through which we see everything. So I have to ask this morning, what lens are you viewing and living life through? What lens are you living and viewing life through? Has your life been changed, transformed by what Jesus has done? Maybe you're like me, you've been in church a while, or you consider yourself a Christian a while. I have a tendency every couple weeks to start thinking that my faithfulness, my good works, my good behavior means that God should start answering some more of my prayers. Means that things should be a little bit easier for me. Means that all these pieces should come together. And regularly I find myself slipping back into that mindset of, okay, I'm good enough. Now God owes me my wages. My faithfulness has finally reached that point. My, my works have finally reached that point where I've got God and we're kind of close and we're, we're looking alike and I'm acting like God and trying to be the best person that I can be. And all of a sudden my mind shifts to that expectation of wages. And all of a sudden, fundamentally, just like Joe, I find myself out of relationship with God because I'm not staying focused on Romans 4, that it's based on God's faithfulness. Are you boasting or prideful or excited or confident in your own faithfulness and consequently diminishing God's faithfulness? Is your works and God's works challenging one another? Because when we become so confident in our own works, our own faithfulness, it actually nullifies the promises that God has for us because it disconnects us from him. Will you this morning choose to see differently? Maybe you aren't yet a Christian. You haven't made that decision yet. You haven't chosen to follow. You haven't decided whether this God is worthy of your faith. I would challenge you this week and over the coming weeks that you take an active role in answering the question, who is Jesus? It's not enough to sit passively and hear messages, but it's an active decision, just like Paul, to pursue God with everything that you have, to test the waters, to see who is this person that says he's worthy of my faith. So that's the question I leave you with this morning. What lens are you viewing and living life through? Let's pray this morning. Father, we come to you this morning asking for your strength and your support. Lord, we carry a lot of baggage in this life, a lot of things that color and influence the perspectives that we have, the lenses through which we understand and interpret this world. We ask, just like Paul, that you would have an encounter with each person here, that they might see things differently this week as they look and search out who you are, and the power of your faithfulness. We thank you for that in your name. Amen.